Paul says, leaving off of verse 4 regarding Christ rising on the third day, that he was, verse 5, then seen by Cephas, and then by the twelve, and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom, he says, the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. And Father, we humbly ask even for your grace this morning to be able to be receptive and attentive to the voice of your Holy Spirit that would speak to us through the word of God today. Lord, you know what that means for each one of us. We pray you would take away that which would distract mentally or just circumstantially and even just that you would completely, Lord, override any effort of the devil to just rob, kill, or destroy any good thing that you want for this gathering and this time as we open the word of God together. So we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us now by your spirit in the same way you spoke as you walked around this earth. So speak to us now, Lord. We have ears that are wanting to hear, and we pray that we could hear your voice clearly. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, thus far, the Lord has uh, blessed me with two good and godly son-in-laws of my three daughters, and though me and my Son-in-laws all have variations in our backgrounds. We have some distinctions and differences in our personalities. And though the circumstances were a little bit different, there's one central thing uh, that we all share in common. And that is this, that at one point in our lives, we had an encounter with a Montemuro woman. And my son-in-laws would gladly testify to you that that has a tremendous impact upon your life. When you look up the word encounter, it describes an unexpected meeting with someone, often an unplanned meeting and experience which can be life-altering. And me and the boys know that an encounter with a Montemura woman is a life-altering experience. That when that encounter happens, your heart is hooked, your way of life is changed forever, so is your checkbook. And it's a good life-altering experience, but the power of experiencing one of these gals makes you a completely different man. Now, in a much greater way, the most powerful encounter any person can have is, of course, to have an encounter with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. To have a personal encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ transforms a person's life in wonderful ways. It is a life-altering experience, and really, Paul today is describing for us in our verses a list of some individuals, not all of them, but a list of some individuals who Jesus literally appeared to after his resurrection, and through their encounter with Christ, through those unexpected meetings, their lives were changed. And look, Jesus, the Bible says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so in a similar way, Jesus wants to give us, I believe, as people, our own encounters with him 
as well. Again, remember the background as we began chapter 15 last week. Paul there started reminding the Corinthian believers about this gospel or good news that he came to the city and proclaimed there that established the church at Corinth. And he sort of gave a summarization of what Jesus accomplished to describe what the gospel was. He described the literal historical events of what Jesus fulfilled, particularly if you look back in verse 3 and 4, describing the gospel. He said, I delivered to you, first of all, what I received, that Christ died for our sins, number one. Number two, we saw, that happened according to the scriptures, that he was then secondly, verse 4, buried. And then thirdly, verse 4, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Paul will now spend the rest of chapter 15 focusing on that last statement in verse 4 that Jesus rose again the third day. And in chapter 15, he will now further expound upon the reality that Christ is risen and talk about the value that brings to us. He'll talk about the importance of the resurrection, all the tremendous benefits spiritually and eternally that that is going to bring to us who've trusted and received in that. And he starts out in our verses this morning by really supplying evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. If you're going to say someone is back alive from the dead, it would probably be good to have some clear evidence and proof that that's true. Well, Paul here does that. He indicates some different people who had personal encounters with the Lord. Acts chapter 1 verse 3 tells us this. There it says Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering or death by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So the Bible tells us that after Jesus rose from the dead in his glorified resurrected body, that for over a month before he ascended back into heaven from where he originally came at the right hand of the father, that Jesus spent over a month appearing disappearing, appearing, disappearing, giving these various appearances to his followers, proving to them that he was indeed alive back from the realm of the dead. And remember, he would spend time talking with them. He'd let them touch him and embrace him to indicate to them that he wasn't just a phantom or a ghost or some imagination, but he literally had a physical resurrected body. He would eat meals with them. The Bible tells us that he would speak to them about the kingdom of God. And what he was doing was basically just assuring them that things were going to be different now. He wasn't in his fleshly glorified or his fleshly body, excuse me, the human body he had for those three and a half years he walked with them, but he was still very much alive just in a different form in a glorified eternal body now, and he was still very much with them. And he was assuring them and strengthening their faith. And here we get some of the records of a few of those appearances that Paul gives to us. So having in verse four just stated that Christ has risen again from the dead on the third day, Paul then goes on, verse five, to say, and that he was, first of all, notice, seen by Cephas. So the first mention Paul gives of a resurrection encounter is an appearance of Jesus proving himself to be alive. You might say to encourage as well as to restore someone who had deeply failed the Lord. Someone who had made grievous mistakes in their life and they were living with a tremendous amount of guilt, a deep amount of regret. He mentions here Cephas having this appearance in verse five. And Cephas is basically the Aramaic name for who we better know in the Bible as Peter. 
Uh, and sometimes he's referred to Cephas. Other times he's referred to Peter. And Peter, we know him. He had good intentions. But Peter also had some real honest weaknesses in his life as a man. Uh, Peter was someone who was a very strong personality. He was a leader by nature. But Peter also, remember, we see in the Gospels, was very self-confident. He was a bit proud from time to time. And Peter was someone who was kind of, you might say, a very self-sufficient personality. Uh, he didn't look for help or believe he needed help. He, he kind of had an issue with that. And he was a very spontaneous personality as well. Peter was one of those type of people who many a times just put his brain in neutral and his mouth in first gear. And a lot of times very impulsively said things. A lot of times he would very impulsively just engage and do things without really thinking them through. And sometimes that could be a great thing, but all the times, you know, our greatest strength can also be our biggest weakness. And that was the case with Peter. He was kind of just an impulsive guy. He didn't think about it. He saw something. He'd just jump right in and do it. Well, some of these things in Peter's life, of course, became the very things that were weaknesses that led to his downfall spiritually. And more than that, a major shipwreck. In Peter's life. The Bible tells us in Matthew 26 that when Jesus was informing his disciples that he was going to be betrayed and that all of them were going to give into fear and scatter from him and abandon the Lord in his hardest hour, it tells us that Peter impulsively refuted this with strong degree of self-confidence saying, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you i can understand some of these other guys lord they can be weak christians at times but not me not me i would i would never desert you lord jesus of course said to him i tell you the truth peter in other words what you believe about yourself is a lie <laughs> always remember that <laughs> jesus says what you believe about yourself is one thing but i'll tell you the truth about yourself so jesus said let me tell you the truth peter this very night in fact before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times that you even know me. And Peter, it says, said no. He insisted, the Bible says, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. Now, not only being self-confident, but arguing with Jesus is never a good idea. That usually leads to major mistakes in your life. And Peter argued with the Lord. Now, Lord, I don't know why you're thinking this. I'm telling you, I will die with you. And of course, Peter's pride and self-confidence led to his error. Not just his error, but a real personal shipwreck for Peter. I mean, he boldly denied Jesus emphatically three times. The Bible says literally calling down curses. He was so emphatic that he did not know the Lord. And not even before a Roman soldier, it was before a little girl that Peter actually broke and had this great downfall in his life. And he wept bitterly over the grief of that and did something he thought he never would. And you imagine that in Peter's life, being there afterwards and recognizing the regret, the grief, the remorse, the guilt, thinking, I never thought I would do something like this. I can't believe I'm in this place right now. And he was no doubt overwhelmed with condemnation and guilt and grief from his failure because he had blown it so severely. And look, maybe to some degree this morning, you can relate to that. Maybe there's been a major failure in your life recently or in your past, or maybe just, I mean, a major shipwreck where you found yourself on the back end of some really bad decisions or some really grievous mistakes where you are just overwhelmed with the grief and the guilt 
and the remorse and even just the shock that you would actually be able to fail to that degree and all the feelings that go with that. Well, Jesus, after he conquered the penalty and the power of sin, did what? Well, the Bible tells us he actually went and sought out Peter for a private meeting. Peter was one of these private meetings Jesus had after his resurrection. Luke 24, as well as 1 Corinthians 15, tell us here that Jesus, after his resurrection, went and had a personal meeting alone with Peter in his failed condition. Now, we're not told any other details about the encounter between the two of them, but is this not just like our Lord, who's so gracious and compassionate to go and seek out the person who's feeling the absolute worst? to go and seek out the person who has just failed and everyone else is shocked by and upset with, that's broken and feels they've ruined their life and destroyed their future. And just like Jesus, he goes, and you can only imagine that meeting. He wants to prove to Peter his love and he offers him gracious reassurance. And I'm sure he spoke things to restore Peter's soul, to let him know that, look, forgiveness is available. Everything was covered upon the cross and that he still loved Peter, and that he even had great plans for Peter still, that despite his failures, that Jesus was able to take even his failures and turn that around despite his past mistakes and still give him a really good future. And again, let me just say this morning, perhaps Jesus came to you in a similar encounter, maybe when, let's be honest, you were at your absolute worst, and you were at the lowest point in your life And Jesus graciously came and met you right there when you were in the absolute pit of your own mistakes or or remorse and guilt. And he meets you there. And maybe even this morning, I don't know, you could be here and perhaps you're still in that limbo state and you're doubting because of something that you did that the Lord could still do that in your life. Well, look, may the reminder of what he did for Peter encourage you. Jesus is alive today and he wants to restore your soul. Doesn't matter how much you failed. Doesn't matter what mistakes you've made, there's nothing beyond the grace of God. And when you failed greatly, you and I as well can have an encounter with Jesus in those times. And you know what? Those encounters with Jesus do powerful things in people's hearts. Because remember, Jesus said, whoever's forgiven much loves much. And is that not Peter's testimony? Peter ended up becoming broken and humbled and a very gracious, powerful vessel of the Lord. And he strengthened a whole lot of other, guess what? Failures. That was Peter's ministry. Peter understood, listen, I've been there. I failed as well. And let me tell you, it's not over. And Jesus still loves you and he can still forgive you. And Peter had this wonderful ministry on the backside of that and became a very prominent powerful vessel for the Lord and successful even leader in the early church as we know him. Well, next we're told in verse five, a second appearance Paul records is that he also says verse five was seen by the 12. And of course, that's a reference to the group of the 12 disciples or the 12 followers that Jesus kind of selected to travel with him during his earthly ministry. Now, before you get caught up in a quandary there, granted when Jesus appeared to them, technically not all 12 of them were present at that time. Judas had already betrayed Jesus at this point and sadly had went out and committed suicide afterwards. We're told Thomas actually wasn't there as well. On that first occasion, Jesus showed up to the disciples. Yet the 12, when you look at it in the Gospels, tends to be the technical term for the group. You know, kind of like the movie years ago, The Dirty Dozen. There really wasn't a dozen, but that was their title. They were The Dirty Dozen, 
right? And, and the disciples were known as the Twelve. And so this is a reference to those disciples who traveled around with Jesus. And when he appeared to them, proving he was alive, that resulted in restoring their faith. And, and, and if you would, calming fears and unbelief that they were wrestling with in their heart. John records these accounts for us. John chapter 20 tells us that Sunday evening after Jesus had risen from the dead, it says the disciples, listen, were meeting behind locked doors because of fear of the Jewish leaders. In other words, the night that Jesus had just risen from the dead that morning, his disciples were not filled with wonder and belief. They were actually struggling with doubt and fear. His followers were going through a season where they were basically being hindered and hampered by being afraid in their humanity. They were locked in an upper room, afraid of the religious leaders coming to get them, and they were struggling in fear. And Jesus goes to these disciples in doubt and fear, and he stands among them. He just appears and says, peace be with you. And he spoke and he showed them his wounds and his hands and his side. And they were filled with joy, it says, when they saw the Lord. And again, he said, peace be with you as the father has sent me. So I am sending you. And then it says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So Jesus goes to them. Notice it says they're in a locked room. What does that mean? It says they're in a locked room and Jesus just appeared in the room. You're talking about a wholly different dimension. He didn't knock on the door and say, can you open the door? He just stepped right through the wall. He just appeared out of the spiritual dimension because he was now in his glorified body. There's going to be some neat things when we get our glorified bodies. Imagine that. Jesus just appeared in the room. He just showed up. And rather than rebuke them or chide them for their fear and, and their, their lack of faith, Jesus just met them where they're at to strengthen their faith. And what he wanted to say is, look, we need to stop this fear stuff. Peace, he said, shalom. My peace be with you. And even as the Father sent me into this world, he says, I'm now sending you. And it says he breathed on them. And at that very moment, they received the Holy Spirit. I believe that's when they were first indwelt with the Spirit of God, giving them that inner strength. But of course, the Bible in that passage tells us that one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, was not with the others when Jesus came that first night. So the group was there. For some reason, Thomas wasn't present. I don't know what he was doing, if he was golfing that Sunday morning or something, but he wasn't there for that meeting. He missed a meeting. And look, this is a great reminder. Thomas misses that meeting of the Lord when Jesus does something really powerful. And what's Thomas doing afterwards? He's struggling in his own faith because they say, Thomas, we've seen him. He's alive. He says, come on, unless I see for myself, I'm not believing that. And so Thomas is struggling spiritually, and part of it, notice, is directly connected to when the, mat, the meeting of the Lord's people happened. Thomas wasn't there. And, and so, again, just a good reminder to us, when the Lord's people meet, you want to be there because that's when the Lord does things. That's when he reveals things and shows us things and speaks things to us. And so Thomas here is doubting. Remember, he's struggling, and he says, unless I can see for myself and put my own finger into his wounds and touch it, he says, I, I, I'm not believing. And it tells us the very next weekend when Thomas was there present with the disciples, the doors being locked again, suddenly, as before, standing amongst them, Jesus showed up and said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands and my wound and my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. And it says Thomas fell down saying, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe 
without seeing me. So do you see what Jesus does? Jesus knows that Thomas is struggling in unbelief. And so Jesus goes and reveals himself to him to help him in the midst of his unbelief. He meets Thomas right where he's at. And it had to be, imagine, a little bit unique as he appears in that room. And the first thing he says to Thomas is he says, Thomas, here, you said you wanted to touch my wounds, touch my wounds. Now, wait a minute. Thomas is probably scratching his head. Did what do you guys tell him I said that? How did he know? Because last time when Thomas was saying those things, Jesus was right there. They just didn't see him because he's now in his glorified body. Jesus would let them see him, and then he would not let them see him. He'd let them see him, he'd not. But Jesus was right there because he's alive. And so Jesus, being alive, heard Thomas expressing all those doubts. And so he met him, and he said, here you go, Thomas. You strengthen your faith. Touch me. See for yourself. And Thomas, of course, was overwhelmed in his Heart was strengthened and he submitted himself to the Lord. And again, this resurrection account reminds us here that unbelief and fear and worry are really major hindrances to the Lord's people. Fear is the opposite of faith. And knowing, listen, knowing that we serve a Lord who has defeated the power of not only sin, but death should be a tremendous encouragement to our soul as he helps to restore our soul when we're fearful to know that Jesus is greater than all the threatening things in this world. They were terrified of the religious leaders locked away. Oh, they might come get us. They might come get us. What if they catch us meeting? And Jesus said, look, I want you to live in faith. You're my followers. I've defeated death for you. Have confidence, believe in me and trust me. And, and he wanted us as believers to live in faith. And so he strengthens the disciples' faith because he's alive. We can have great assurance that there's tremendous power that our Lord supplies to us through his risen life. Ephesians 1 tells us the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to help you and I currently. And today, what a wonderful thing if you're struggling with doubt or maybe you're wrestling with fear or anxiety in your own life to know that Jesus can meet you right where you are and he can strengthen you internally and he can calm your fears and give you peace in your heart as you trust him and realize that if he can overcome death, there's nothing he can't overcome that you're afraid of. They can give you the strength to deal with those very things. Well, verse 6 goes on to then tell us that after that, he was then also seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom, Paul says, the greater part remain to the present, but some, he says, have fallen asleep, which is a biblical euphemism for, for death, that you would lay down and rest but get back up again. So the Bible uses that terminology. So this refers to an occasion where Jesus shows up, notice, at a large gathering. The text tells us here that he appeared and revealed himself to be alive to everyone present at the same time. And it was a group, it says, of over 500 people. Now, it's likely that this happened in the area of Galilee. We don't have the record of the account, just Paul's mentioning it here. But it's likely this happened in Galilee because in Matthew 28, when Jesus appeared to the women who saw him that very first Sunday morning when he rose from the dead, Jesus said this to those women. He said, don't be afraid, but go and tell my brethren, my brothers, my followers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So it's very likely that this is the occasion when this group of 500 assembled there on one of the mountains in Galilee and Jesus appears to this large group 
that meets him there in Galilee. And no doubt they worshiped him and he spoke to them things about the kingdom of God. I believe it's likely this may also have been the time there when Jesus could have given them what we know as the Great Commission from Matthew chapter 28, maybe to that large group telling them to go and disciples of all nations. But consider, if you would, what Paul is referencing as he says this here in verse 6 to those who wanted concrete evidence that Jesus was really alive from the dead. He says, look, do you want proof? Do you want credible evidence? Many of these people, he says, over 500 who all saw him at the exact same time together. He says many of them, 20 years later, as Paul's writing this, they're still alive to this very day. They're still around, Paul says. You can go and seek them out, interview them, Paul's saying. Go interrogate them. See if their stories collaborate and if it it matches up. Go and talk to them. He says a lot of them are still alive 20 years later. They can all tell you. You can see if their stories line up. There was over 500 of them. Now think about this from a judicial standpoint. Today, if you had a group this size, or let's even shrink it if you had a group three or four people, and they all saw someone walk into a Wawa with a weapon and hold up the Wawa and walk out with the money. And they all, as eyewitnesses, three, four, five people could all say, yes, it was that guy with that hat and that mustache. And we saw him. That would be pretty solid, would it not? Proof and evidence in a courtroom to have two or three, a few eyewitnesses to say, hey, we all saw it with our own eyes. That would be a pretty solid case there. That would be pretty strong proof. Well, the Bible is saying not two or three, not not a group this size, but over 500 eyewitnesses at the exact same time saw and spent time with Jesus. And he says, go interview them. Go get their testimonies. What the word of God is showing us here, no doubt, this reality is that we have incredibly valid proof of the resurrection of jesus that there's incredible validity to the proof of the historical evidence that jesus christ the jesus of nazareth who died on the cross that rose again from the dead and that he is alive look this morning your faith has tremendous historical accuracy and validity verse 7 paul then goes on to say and then after that he was then seen by james as well as by all the apostles. So this resurrection appearance to James resulted in, you might say, a person overcoming their own skepticism, which was caused, really, I think, in James' mind, by logical reasoning. And let me explain what I mean by that. This encounter of James, seeing that Jesus was back and alive, resulted in him putting full faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord and surrendering to him in a way that he was not doing prior to this. The James that's referred to here in verse 7 is a reference to James, who is one of the half-brothers of Jesus. See, the Bible teaches very clearly that after Jesus, or excuse me, after uh, Mary miraculously conceived the life of Jesus in her virgin womb, that after she gave birth to Jesus as a virgin, that Mary and her new husband Joseph consummated their marriage. The Bible does not teach the perpetual virginity of Mary. That's an unbiblical doctrine. That Joseph and Mary then had natural relations as a husband and wife and conceived and gave birth to multiple children afterwards. 
It tells us in Matthew chapter 13 that Jesus had multiple half-brothers and sisters that he grew up with. And though his family members were all imagined, they were all exposed to Jesus in the exact same way, John chapter 7 says that Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. That is, they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, that he was the Lord. And again, give them a little credit. You can understand that, how they struggled to believe that your older brother is the Messiah, that your older brother is you know, the Lord, that he's God. And, and again, so they wrestled with this. And despite his parents' strong belief, and I believe Mary and Joseph had no doubt whatsoever, despite his parents' strong belief in who Jesus was, James, as their child, did not believe for himself. You know, that should be an encouragement to you as parents if you have strong belief in the Lord and you wonder why your children don't have belief in the Lord. It doesn't mean necessarily that you did something wrong. The reality is they have a free will. And they have to choose to own their own belief in Jesus Christ. And you might fairly say with James, his own familiarity with Jesus is almost what sort of stumbled him mentally. And he kind of had a hard heart. You know, the Bible, or, you know, we, we often talk about familiarity breeds contempt for things sometimes. And as James lived with Jesus and saw Jesus and heard Jesus, his familiarity with Jesus almost made him a bit cynical and skeptical. And it stumbled him and he was choosing not to believe. And perhaps, again, you can relate. You know, there are some people who can be highly exposed to the Lord Jesus And though they're highly exposed to the Lord Jesus, all the while they don't really believe in Jesus for themselves. And they have skepticism or hard hearts. But what did Jesus do? He went and personally intervened in James' life. And in a powerful way, he went, the Bible says, and revealed himself to be alive to James. And he wanted James to have his own encounter with the Lord. And this humbled James personally, helped him overcome his own logical reasoning that was holding back his heart from believing that Jesus, his older brother, was actually the Son of God, the Messiah, and the Savior whom God had sent for his soul as well. And James not only ends up becoming a dedicated follower of Jesus, But even more than that, James ends up becoming a very strong servant of the Lord, a leader in the church. He writes for us the New Testament book of James, which has fantastic wisdom. And look, let me say this morning, today, if in some degree you are struggling with full commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, or you're struggling with just fully surrendering in belief to Jesus or following Jesus, and if perhaps the reason is because you're incredibly smart and logical in your thinking, I would caution you, be careful, be careful, be careful that you don't make the idol of your intellect the very thing that keeps you from worshiping Jesus the way that you should. You know, they often said before, the longest journey is the 18 inches from the head to the heart. And I'm not saying we don't have a reasonable faith and that we don't have authenticity and that we shouldn't reason things out. But sometimes the idol of our own human intellect, like James, can be the very thing that's our stumbling block from having humble, childlike faith to believe who Jesus is and to fully follow him for ourselves. And for James, this was something that he kind of had to overcome. Let me encourage you to remember that true faith is not a head issue. It's a heart issue. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10, whoever confesses with the mouth, Jesus is Lord, listen, and believes in the heart that God has raised him from the dead, that person 
will be saved. You have to be willing from your heart to say, I may not be able to put all the pieces together logically, but I will choose from my heart humbly to surrender and to believe upon this Jesus as the Savior for my soul and the Lord over my life. And this is what brought James to that place through this appearance where he fully surrendered to Jesus. Now, as Paul comes to verse 8 through 10 now, he finally speaks openly of his own life-changing encounter, which the Lord gave him as well. Paul says, verse 8, Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one, he says, born out of due time. So Paul now openly shares about his own life-changing encounter with Jesus, where the Lord graciously revealed himself to Paul and powerfully in his glorified resurrected state humbled Paul's heart as well. And of course, Acts chapter 9, as well as Acts chapter 22 and 26, give to us the record of when Jesus in his resurrected form appeared to the apostle Paul. We know him as Saul, and of course his name became changed to Paul. But Paul says here, verse 8, last of all, after many years, he says, after many others had seen Jesus, he says, finally he was seen by me. And I believe this shocked Paul, that graciously Jesus chose to bless him with his own encounter. And this encounter with Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul the Apostle, again, was a life-altering encounter with Jesus. If there's an evidence of a person whose man, whose life was transformed in a powerful way, it was Saul of Tarsus who became Paul the Apostle. And look how Paul describes his spiritual conversion experience with me there in verse 8. Do you see how he describes it? He says, last of all, he was seen by me. And then he says, as one born out of due time. Notice he refers to his spiritual experience with Jesus as what? A spiritual birth as one who was born. He describes his spiritual life starting like a spiritual birth. See, though Paul had previously, we know, as Saul of Tarsus, he was a very devout religious man, right? I mean, he knew intellectually books of scripture. He had a lot of head knowledge. He was a devout religious person. He attended synagogue consistently. He served very faithfully. And Paul had a very deep spiritual routine. He grew up in a religious tradition, yet Paul was spiritually dead inside. He had religion, but he had no genuine relationship with God. And those are vastly two different things. And Paul says, there came a time when I met Jesus and I was born spiritually my spiritual life began i had a start to my spiritual life and john chapter 3 jesus jesus himself uses that exact same language with another religious leader nicodemus saying to him you must be born again you have to have a spiritual birth he says that which is flesh and born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit nicodemus don't be shocked that i tell you you must be born again to see the kingdom of god in other words nicodemus you only got into this life one way. You had a physical birth. That's when your life started experiencing physical life. And he says in the same way, you can't experience the spiritual realm until you have a spiritual birth. You must have a spiritual birth. And this is what Paul describes. He says, I was born. And notice how he describes that spiritual birth. He says, I was born as one out of due time. That is unlike all the other apostles in the early church. I think Paul's saying, I didn't get that typical three-year gestational period that all the other disciples were privileged to get. 
They got three years of that kind of gestational time of getting to know Jesus and hearing Jesus teaching Peter and James and the others. But Paul was unusually and abnormally born of the Spirit without any gradual development. I mean, he went from hatred of Jesus to full-on surrender to Jesus. Jesus just intervened and interrupted his life and brought him alive spiritually, and Paul was radically, radically converted. And let me just say this morning, what the background experience is, what the process was regarding how people come into a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ and discover him for themselves, that's really irrelevant. What is important is that you are truly alive spiritually. How the experience comes about, how you want to describe it, what your background was, what the process was, that that really isn't the essential issue. The essential issue, Paul says, I was radically transformed, very different than the rest of the disciples. But what Paul knew is there's one thing I can tell you. I know that I know that I know for myself that I'm alive spiritually. You know, the Bible tells us in Romans 8 that God's spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're a child of God. And when you have been born again and had a genuine encounter with Jesus Christ yourself, you know that you know that you know that you know that you know whether anyone else knows that you met Jesus. And something happens on the inside. And Paul's saying, listen, this was my encounter. He then goes on, verse 9, to say, for I am, look what he says of himself, the least of all the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, he says, but the grace of God which was in me. So notice Paul's awareness of who he once was prior to his encounter with Jesus Christ. Being shown amazing grace, it deeply impacted Paul's heart. And when you look at him, it changed his entire life trajectory, right? Look what Paul does first here. He refers to his past before knowing the Lord personally. He tells us again there in verse 9, he says, this is who I once was. He says, I persecuted the church of God. And when you study the book of Acts in the New Testament, before Paul was humbled and surrendered to Jesus, this guy was not just disinterested in Jesus. He wasn't just apathetic about Christianity. Paul was the exact opposite. He was fiercely opposed with hatred, right, toward Jesus and great animosity. I mean, Paul despised this man, Jesus of Nazareth, because he thought this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was destroying the ways of Judaism, that he was ruining the ways and the customs of Moses and the religious leaders. And so Paul hated Jesus and anyone who was a follower of the way of the Lord. And so he hated Christians, and it tells us here that he persecuted the church. The word persecute means to painfully mistreat and to punish all those who were a part of the church. And when you read the accounts in the book of Acts, it says literally that that he was aggressively going out. It says breathing threats and murder against the followers of the Lord, wreaking havoc on the church. Remember, Paul would go and get letters from authorities, and then he would go search out Christians. He would literally go on manhunts like he was looking for a terrorist, trying to hunt them down. 
And he was arresting people and causing them to be tortured and even put to death simply to be a, because they were a part of the church. So he was aggressively destroying Christianity. And this is who Jesus goes and graciously seeks out and not only opts to show himself to and to forgive, but says, you know what? All that energy you got, I'd like to use it for something a whole lot better. And he turns him around and makes him one of the most strong vessels of the Lord in a powerful way. Notice some of the evidences that Paul had his own encounter with the risen Lord. I think one of them that's very obvious here in verse 9 is this man goes from being very arrogant, very self-absorbed with a haughty view of himself to being a very humble man afterwards. Look what Paul says of himself. He says, I am the least of the apostles. He says, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. Because of who I am, Paul says, and what I used to do that is persecuting the church, he says, I'm not only the least of the apostles, I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. I don't even deserve the title. Now, that is a depiction there in the Bible of genuine humility. It's a proper view of one's own unworthiness before the Lord. And though Paul, I mean, study the New Testament, though Paul became, it's fair to say, the most prominent of all the apostles, probably the most powerfully used of all the apostles, wrote more of the New Testament by the Spirit of the Lord than anyone else, Paul never became a spiritual celebrity. How would he make it in the modern church? He didn't have paulthepostle.com. I mean, he never became a spiritual celebrity. Never. His entire ministry, Paul the Apostle, became this genuine, down-to-earth, humble man, knowing who he was, knowing what he once was, and just had a heart of humility and servanthood. And due to his experience with the Lord, he says, I'm the absolute least of all the apostles. I'm not the greatest apostle. I don't even want to be the greatest apostle. I don't want to be thought of as the greatest apostle. He says, I am the least of all the apostles. I'm the least important, the least deserving. And I think Paul thought in some ways the least useful of all. He says, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. And look, I bring this to your attention this morning because when someone has a genuine encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ and they experience the divine authority of the Lord and they experience the grace and the love of the Lord, that doesn't put wind in someone's sails. That sucks the wind out of their sails. That humbles them. It makes them become a broken person. Their spirit of pride is diminished and they become less self-absorbed and they become more humble in the presence of the Lord. And it causes you to sense, like Paul here, it causes you to sense your own unworthiness. You realize how unworthy you are and how grateful you are that the Lord would manifest his love to you. And then as you continue in regular experiences with the Lord, you will maintain that humility and grow in that humility. And Paul's a perfect example of that. As Paul progressed as a maturing Christian, his humility progressed as well. When you follow Paul's statements through the New Testament, he says here in verse 9, look, he says, I'm the least of the apostles, of the spiritual leaders with authority. Then later on in Ephesians 3, Paul later on in his Christian experience says, I'm less than the least of all the saints. So Paul goes from, I'm the least of the spiritual leaders. He says, I'm the least of all Christians. I'm the lowest of every Christian. At the end of Paul's life, right before he died, he said, I'm the chief of all sinners. <laughs> I'm the biggest sinner there is out there. 
Because what was happening? As he was growing in his relationship with Jesus, he was maintaining and developing greater and greater humility. And when you have ongoing encounters with Jesus, no matter whether you grow in spiritual maturity or not, it will bring greater depths of humility into your nature. And this was Paul's experience. Another evidence that Paul had encountered the risen Jesus is he also discovered and came to understand the incredible grace of God. Because he says, I'm not worthy to even be called an apostle. And then look what he says in verse 10. But he says, I know my unworthiness, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Again, the grace of God refers to that undeserved favor and blessing and help that God gives to us in his kindness. And it's not earned by our effort, but it is freely experienced because God is kind. And because God is gracious. And Paul says here, I don't deserve anything. And I'm not worthy of anything. I didn't earn or achieve my standing or my role. He says, it's solely by the grace of God that I am what I am. And Paul fully came to embrace and understand this. And I think he understood it in two ways. First of all, regarding his salvation. Paul understood that the only reason he was going to heaven And the only reason he was forgiven and the only reason he had become the man that he had become and had the standing and relationship with God that he did was because God was really gracious. And that by the grace of God, he now was who he was as a Christian. And I think Paul understood this as well, even in regards to the privilege to be able to have an opportunity to serve the Lord and do kingdom work. Paul says, it's not because I'm special. It's not because I'm talented. It's not because I'm anyone important or influential that I get to serve the Lord in the way that I get to serve the Lord. He says, but it's by the grace of God. It's in spite of who I am. By the grace of God, I I just, I am what I am. And I think Paul understood, I didn't work my way up some corporate ladder and that's why I'm where I'm at now in my status because I kept, you know, faithfully working with Paul humbly understood the only reason I get a privilege to serve Jesus and the only way I can be effective in ministry for the Lord is by the power of the grace of God being at work in my life when I get out of the way. And Paul was able, I think, to kind of even just to agree comfortably and confidently embrace who the Lord made him. Paul knew he was unworthy, but he also was able to comfortably say, but you know, here's what I understand. God is really gracious. And so I am what I am. I'm not going to keep self-pity. Oh, I'm so unworthy. I'm so unworthy. I'm so... By the grace of God, I am what I am. And so I'm going to embrace what I am. And by the grace of God, I'll continue to just walk with the Lord and be who I am with a sense of spiritual comfort, accepting his grace for my life. And Paul's experience with Jesus and that grace motivated him as well to serve very faithfully. Notice the grace of God motivated Paul because Paul, look what he says, verse 10. He says, I labored more abundantly than them all. He says as well, verse 10, his grace toward me was not in vain because I labored more abundantly than they all. Paul wanted to make sure the grace of God that had been poured into his life, didn't end up being an empty investment that God had made, right? He appreciated God's grace. So he said, I didn't want his grace, which was radically poured into my life, become a vain investment. I wanted God to get good benefit on his return. Because Paul said, I know who I am. And it took a whole lot of grace to make me different. And it took a whole lot of grace to do anything useful with my life. And Paul says, 
I didn't want that to become worthless because I was just half-heartedly serving Jesus or because I was just in my own selfishness or laziness going to live Paul's plan for his life rather than following the call of God that had been put upon Paul's life. And he said, I didn't want that to happen. Therefore, he says, I labored more abundantly than all the rest of the apostles. And look, that was true of Paul. Read the New Testament. When you read the New Testament and you look at Paul's life, this guy served in the most dedicated manner. I mean, my estimation after Jesus, if you want somebody's picture in the dictionary under the definition of faithfulness, it was the Apostle Paul. I mean, this guy was incredibly dedicated, faithful, committed, solid. He made great personal sacrifices, and he was willing to serve through challenges and persevere. And he continued to daily weekly, monthly, year after year, show up and pour out his life and all that he did for Jesus and for other people. Yet despite that reality, notice Paul, as I said, he never got this hero concept. Because look what the last thing Paul says, if you would. He says, yet not I, but it was just the grace of God which was with me. So despite who Paul had become, Paul says, all I ever became was someone who was aware that I was a weak, unworthy vessel that the grace of God could flow through and the Lord could use. Ephesians chapter three, Paul said, I became a servant by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his mighty power. Paul knew it wasn't his skill, his ability, what he brought to the table, but it was just the grace of God and God's grace made his life useful. And look, let me just say this morning, folks, all God's looking for is our availability. You don't have to bring anything to the table. I'll help you. You have nothing to bring to the table, nor do I. But the Bible tells us this in 1 Peter 4. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. You know, I look at these verses here and I think, what amazing things happen when a person has an encounter with Jesus, right? And this is what we should be praying for. Lord, give that person an encounter with you. Go encounter them, Lord. Go and just break into their world and encounter them and do what you did in our lives. Do it in their life as well, Lord. And what a wonderful thing. Jesus is alive today and we can ask the Lord to meet us right where we are in our lives right now. And as we have further experiences and encounters with the Lord, good things continue to happen in each of our lives. Let's stand together.